Hey everybody, it is episode 24 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris joining and I've got Steve with me. Hey Steve. Hello world. We are continuing our episode on the coach-athlete relationship. We've got the rest of the one-on-one talk between Steve and I that we started on the last episode, episode 23. And then we're going to finish up today with some tips bringing it all together on how to have a good and solid coach-athlete relationship. So that's our main topic. We'll get to it in a second. First, we've got some current events that we've got to talk about. The first one, Steve, I've got to bring up because you made a statement the other day. (laughs) I believe believe this was on the social, (laughs) the interwebs, (laughs) that I thought was pretty bold. I picked it up. I, I think it was a comment on someone else's post. But Killian Jornet, trail runner probably arguably the best trail runner in the world recently accomplished a feat at everest he climbed mount everest from base camp all the way to the peak of everest and and then back to i believe the the advanced camp in 26 hours or so 26 with hours. no oxygen no fixed ropes yes kind of running so to speak but really fast hiking and then he said at the end stepping through it but as the first time anybody's ever done it that fast with no oxygen no ropes from base camp and and not just faster like way faster days yeah like a day faster like like in half the time if not even i don't even know what the i think high 40s was the previous record for that but anyway he did it from base camp to the top of Everest in an insanely fast amount of time. And this is a part of his pursuit to reach some of the world's tallest peaks, sort of speed hiking, so to speak, as quickly as he can. And you know, he's won one hard rock the last couple of years, which is arguably the toughest trail hundred in the U.S. He's run Mont Blanc, won Mont Blanc in Europe. So he's the man on the trails, but he's taking it beyond that. Now he's got this FKT on Everest going from base camp to the summit and in 26 hours. No ropes, no, no oxygen. So your comment, as someone had posted about that, was that he has to be considered as one of the greatest of all time runners, distance runners. Go, the GOAT. He has to be in the conversation. That, to me, is a bold statement. We've talked about Bekele. We've talked about Kipchoge. Those are the big names. We talked about Jebra Selassie at one point in that discussion. I even went all the way back to Zadopek and Viren. Correct. So, right. But this gets us off the track, off the roads, off the traditional definition of a distance runner to someone who is doing it in a different way on the trails and now on the highest peaks in the world. Back up your statement. So, first of all, it was purposefully inflammatory. Purposely designed to get some people's attention and to see what kind of reaction would happen. I have a, f- I have a tendency to flame, and I flamed away. Um, but my main purpose for doing it is to bring attention to not only this young man and his what he's been doing quietly, I think. Um, not quietly in the trail world. If you pay attention to trail running, trail runners around the world know who this guy is because of the kinds of accolades he's done, the things that he's been able to accomplish. He's won Western States. He's won Hard Rock. Um, he's run times and posted times on some courses that um, that that are absolutely mind-boggling, um, where he is considerably faster than anybody else's time, and he does it with a relative ease. Um, I don't know if anybody's read his book. I can't remember the name of it right now, but um, I read it, and I was off. I was off put by uh, he. He's certainly not. Um, 
shy and and he was willing to to toot his own horn in a lot of ways but it's a pretty compelling read um it was really interesting uh, yeah, i think he probably wrote this book a little bit young <clears throat> um could have benefited from maybe a couple more years of experience but i'm sure we'll see subsequent books as we go along but um his website's called summits of my life and that is a great location for folks to go to get more intel on killian but my my main point is this is that we're not people don't talk about um runners come in all shape they come in there's lots of different disciplines in running and uh when we talk about distance running to me that's anything from the 800 meters to the longest distance you can possibly pick you know with middle distance being sort of 800 and 1500 maybe arguably 3000 we don't do that very often but there are occasionally done and then sort of through the 5000 and beyond and but nobody really talks or gives credit um to the accolades of the athletes in the ultra world and the trail running world. And now with what Killian's doing, which is sort of this um, this sort of FKT craziness that's going on right now, which is super cool and interesting. But but I, I think this guy's successes um, and the way that he's won repeatedly everywhere and with the ease with which he's won puts him as definitely the best trail runner ever or the best ultra runner ever in my opinion and i think there'll be people who, who, will, who will come out and argue for some other folks in that regard um but we are now seeing over the last five to ten years a big push in the ultra world of fast runners moving to the ultra as opposed to ultra runners sort of starting and staying in that mode right right um and so i think killian is the greatest example of that and i think the thing that he just did this past weekend with his Everest climb certainly the epicness of it it, it shocked everyone around the world from mountaineers to to the trail running world to the ultra world to everybody they all everybody tipped their hat to that kind of experience to what he did so you know is he i, I probably wouldn't put he and um kipchoge side by side at this moment but i do say there's an argument to actually consider that he's the best in his discipline to not include him um in the conversation is uh isn't really fair you know what about sebastian co you know you you got to say one of the greatest middle distance runners of all time he won two olympic gold medals in the 1500 was also a medalist in the 800 set the world record in both of those events for and and held sway in the world with steve ovet for um a number of years so for 10 plus years i think so you know that that's these folk we could we can probably run down a list of 15 to 20 people who we could say are arguably in play for the greatest of all time and i'm making an argument for people to consider killian in that in that statement i'm not saying he is i'm just saying needs to be considered and it should shine a light on a sort of a dark world that people aren't paying as much attention to Let's shine the light. I like that. It's also worth mentioning that Killian holds the FKT for the fastest ascent and descent of Denali. Correct. Which is the highest point in the 50 U.S. states. So he's done it. He's won Western states. He's won UTMB, won Hard Rock. So you're right. He's got to be considered in the GOAT conversation for well trail also, runners. Well, also another thing I think that's important is, um, and this is only really the only people going to pay attention to this are people who watch it. You know, Allison and I geek out. Allison Max is our guest from last week and uh, who, who is co-owner of uh, Rogue Expeditions. You know, she and I geek out over this stuff because we spend a lot more time thinking about this now that we're, we spend a lot of time in the mountains. So we, 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 we really pay attention to it. 
the things he's doing in the FKT world or the fastest known time world are just mind that the, the, are mind blowing. What he's doing um, and the speeds with which he's doing it are really the real reason. I don't really consider him a put him in the greatest of all time argument just because of the stuff that he did in trail races or what he just did at at, at um, Everest. I think it's more this body of work that he's put together and the kind of the kind of just dominance he's doing it with and the ease he's doing it with. No one else can keep up with him. Nobody can even go. Oh, with he, him. He's been making people look silly at Hard Rock. Yes, for sure. Yes. This to me draws an interesting comparison to pardon the crude analogy to the dog show world whereas in a dog show when you're talking about best in show it's not the best dog in the show it's the best dog in its category as a representation of that category so if you were to and maybe we need to have a whole episode on the goat conversation yeah we but could. if you were to choose the goat from every category and then compare goats not necessarily against each other, but sort of versus the standard in their field, mm -hmm. then I think, and if you think about Killian in that way versus trying to, as you say, draw the direct comparison, if you think about his body of work in the context of the trail and ultra and mountain running world, you have to argue that it's, or you have to be able to argue that it's near the sorts of things that Kipchoge's been able to do in marathoning but just, you know, in a different world. So it is an interesting discussion. I think the thing for me that might keep him out of the conversation is the fact that with Kipchoge, you have this kind of depth of dominance. And with and even in trail with Killian, if you compare it to some others, you know, you've got people that have won more Western states, have won more hard rocks, have years and years of dominance in certain events at the top of that sport where he has sort of decided, hey, I'm going to go run something maybe once or twice, dominate it, and then I'm going to find a new f place to play. And so the thing I think that's missing from his resume is some of that kind of depth of dominance, but certainly his spectrum and variety of dominance and what he's doing now, especially in when it comes to scaling peaks, is out of this world. So I mean, he is 29 years old, so he has <laughs> a little. He's got a depth. little more time. But I do think Chris, one argument also against the the goat argument for Killian is we have we have at least a hundred. And 15 or 20 years. I really think modern athletics started in 1896. It's just I don't think there's any argument about that with the Olympic Games in Athens when right. they re, when it, when De Coubertin started that all back up. You have a hundred years of people running 26.2 miles, or or t as we found out, 26-ish miles, <laughs> right, 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 until they finally got it all clear. But people have been running the 10,000 and the 5,000 and this mile and 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 the 1500 for for 100 plus years and they've been doing it in a way that we've been tracking and watching and we've got heroes and villains and we've been able to see the whole storyline from start to finish in the athletic world of the 800 all the way to the 10,000 we don't have that depth of experience in the ultra running world um we have the great mountaineers of the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, or the teens. You know, I mean, Mallory was one of our uh, one of our guests was named after named after um, one of those climbers. But 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 they were more about getting to the tops of things, and it wasn't about the speed with which they did it. And so this is still a super young sport, and because of that, it, I, I would I would immediately have to say that. If we look and 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 track and sort of say what who's the best in which one, I would give Killian two drops for the lack of the lack of um, history 
associated with this event. Um, and, and, you know, I know, I think you're about to bring up another point um, and I'll let you bring it up, but I'll feed you it, right? So there's also, there's also, this is, this is the Wild West. What he's doing, um, the fastest known time, there's no real governing body. This is all stuff people paying attention to with the internet and with our new ability to track people with GPSs and those kinds of things. So some of that means are people doing what they really said they did and are people doing it in a way that's that 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 are they held to the same standard that a Kipchoge or an Isbel Kiprop or a Seb Co was held to. So right. uh, why don't you Kip, why don't well, you, Kipchoge when he was going for his sub two result, he was on camera the whole time. I could track it. I could set my own stopwatch to it if I wanted to. Killian's result after I saw it, my first reaction, literally the word I thought was unbelievable. Right. Like what he did to me is unbelievable. It's in the spectrum of I don't know if I believe that that's even possible what he did. Because you're talking about Everest. Four people have already died this year on that mountain. I think one or two died that weekend. Yeah. They, I mean, or it's early yeah. in the season, right? Yeah. Or, you know. Right. Th- that is. So, mm-hmm. so what you're talking about going from base camp to the top of Everest in 16 hours by yourself, unsupported, with no oxygen, no fixed ropes. It's a dangerous venture. He summited it supposedly at midnight, but no one was there to see that. So it does make me question at some little part of my brain. I'm not questioning it at all. Look, I'm going to be- believe <laughs> that he did it. I'm going to choose to believe that. But there is a small part of my brain that whispers, gosh, if it's too good to be true maybe it is and so there's a little bit of that certainly in my head with him and with this but i think it goes to your point which is that it's the wild west there's not a lot of tracking and history and ability to compare like we have in track and field where you're running set distances on set ovals that everybody knows and understands and has been happening since the late 1800s you know so i think that's a point but it's impressive nonetheless, and I'm going to choose to believe it until somebody tells me otherwise. I do know that that world, when it comes to Everest, they don't mess around. They verify stuff, you know, five five ways a Sunday. Yes. <laughs> and it's an exclusive and, club. That and they, there's a yep. there's a person in Kathmandu actually records who climbed and summited Everest, when they did it, who they were with, mm-hmm. when they you know when they got to the top, all the stuff, the conditions at the time. There is absolute tracking when it comes to all of that stuff and if that world chooses to believe based on all of you know the verification processes and and things that they have in place then i'll believe too Um, because they won't let him get away you know they're serious about their their mountain and they won't let him get away with a story that's not believable so you know if they if they all kind of vet it and it and it passes then i believe too but I'm, ju- I'm just saying there's a little bit of doubt in the back of my mind there i think he's going to give you a second chance because he actually didn't reach the objective he really wanted to which is to get all the way back because he got sick and yeah. he got really really sick to the point where he said i just can't continue um and so i do think we will get another chance i don't think he's going to walk away from this not having gotten exactly what he wanted um and so that should be interesting yeah but just to be clear i pass that skepticism on not as a critique but as a almost a compliment to say it is so impressive that 
it puts it in the realm of unbelievable. I mean, in a in a one month period of time, we had someone nearly break two hours, and another person get to the top of Mount Everest in twenty six hours in twenty and and bet in twenty six yeah. hours. So the way that people think about what the human this makes my argument that I try to make all the time: limits are perceived; they are not real, and um, there there are certain limits that we have, but but well trained folks doing really hard work with intent um, are are pushing the boundaries of what's what we're what human beings are capable of and that's pretty amazing i will also say about him what i know about him from sort of watching as a fan of the sport broadly he seems like a good guy who wouldn't pull any shit huge respect so he has mad respect and trust in that world and i you know carry that so mad props to him for this accomplishment i hope he heals and gets down safely and all of that so nice work killian you're frankly the trail badass yes (laughs) of the world and have proved it yet again with your Ever Summit. That skepticism we ended that segment on kind of feeds our next segment, which is that we got to talk about, unfortunately, again, doping in our sport in track and field. Recently, the USADA, U.S. Anti-Doping Administration report on Alberto, Alberto Salazar and the Oregon Project came or it got leaked. Some hackers came across it, leaked it to the internet. Fancy and now bears. It's, it's been fancy bears. They've been reported on now by New York Times and other outlets, basically detailing all of the allegations that Kara Goucher, Steve Magnus, and David Epstein brought forward now about 18 months ago, accusing the Oregon Project of playing dirty and maybe not breaking the rules explicitly, but playing way too deep in the gray especially as it relates to injections, IVs, whether they be saline or other things. So we've got the full... And some nefarious, potentially nefarious doctoring going on. When it comes to medical records and prescriptions and things like that. So there's a 200-ish page report out there that you can go find now. And if you want to dig into it, and I encourage you, if you're interested at all in doping in the sport, get in there, read. 20 pages, 50 pages, 200 pages, because it's it's eye-opening. And I think the more educated you can be about these things, the more informed you can talk about them, and the more informed you can be as a fan in making your decisions about who to support. But it's out there. We have to talk about it. I'll give you my opinions in a second. What are What's your reaction to it? Because, my- Steve, I got to, you know, throw some shade your way because you were <laughs> – all up in the Salazar camp when we were talking about Boston. I was all up so, in his business, so man. So where, where are you now with Salazar? I am, um, well, I'm in the same place. I met Alberto Salazar in 2002. We had him come in to Austin. I actually paid to have him come and talk at a, uh, at a, at a kickoff to a, a marathon training program that we did the first time we, our first rogue program, I believe, or the Run Tech University program we did in an opportunity to meet him and so I already knew that he I knew his personality type and I knew based on conversations with him that um, it was an incredibly uh, not not a is a prickly character and and certainly not someone that um, that seemed to be incredibly altruistic nor did he seem empathetic um, and so you know I, I I've never been of the belief that 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 Alberto Salazar is the easiest person in the world to get along with or even necessarily a person I would get along with. But I basically have to say that results at this point in time 
are all that should matter in the conversations that we have about what coaches are accomplishing with their athletes unless we find they're breaking the rules. And so, in my opinion, I have chosen, as I've repeated many times on this podcast, innocence until proven guilty. There's nothing in this USADA document, which, by the way, is not a report. It is a it wasn't supposed to get released. It's not supposed to be released. In fact, there's people arguing there could be some serious litigation issues going towards USADA from the the Oregon Project and Nike themselves, which is probably why there's so much silence. Alberto did send out an email response or, or, or used Ken Grow from the um, the Eugene Oregonian, Oregonian to uh, basically refute this, although his refutation was really pretty limp-wristed in my opinion, not very strong. So I, I, my, my thing is, is I don't, what I read in those, in those papers was I, in those documents was basically that this guy's a, he is an aggressive, aggressive human being pushing the absolute edges of what can be done with the human body within the construct of the rules that USADA and WADA have put out there. Um, ethics are not in his, he's not an ethical human being, in my opinion. When in our initial email conversation, text conversation, Chris and I text back and forth all the time. And you, when we we did it first, and my first statement was the absolute gut wrenchingly disapp- gut wrenching disappointment in the way he treated his athletes. To me, as a coach, I respect Alberto for his results. I would love to see what his training protocols are and how they work. And 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 actually, I listened to a a podcast that Carrie Tolfson did recently on Jordan Hesse, and Jordan Hesse has only. I mean, she's drinking the Kool-Aid, but she said amazing things about Alberto. Her mother passed away. All the things that he's been to her and for her, I see I see that side of him. But what is in this papers is absolutely damning an indictment to him as a human being and certainly as a Christian man. I'm just sorry. I've got absolutely no respect for him if he calls himself that, unless being a Catholic is something different than being a Christian. I'm not going to go down that road too far because I'm going to get in trouble with a lot of people, but... His ethics are not even, they are so far outside beyond the bounds of what a coach should be doing and how a coach should be treating their athletes. It sickens me. What he, what he has done to athletes in terms of browbeating, making them nervous, making them freaked out about their jobs, it's a way to get results, but it's also not a great way to handle human beings. So honestly, what I see in these papers, I see a guy pushing the edges. I see a guy who... Who is who? And, and that again, that's not against the law. I mean, if anybody's in trouble, it's Dr. Richard Brown, in my opinion. That doctor. Now he now Alberto did things that the law could come after him about because he was giving people his prescriptions supposedly, and um, and and sort of lying to them about what medical procedures were going on. But the real culpability, in my mind, sits with Dr. Richard Brown. If you need, if you don't know that name, you have to dig through the papers. Yeah, but, he's the endocrinologist that the Oregon Project uses. Yeah to kind of justify some of the thyroid meds and other things that athletes are getting on potentially without needing them really. Yeah. So the short version is I actually don't have any problem without what I don't have a real big issue and I'm not going to, I'm not going to damn Galen Rupp, even though I think he's probably being forced to do all these other things as an athlete, as much as I'm going to say what Alberto doing in my opinion is beyond the pale in terms of ethics. Yeah, I mean, the facts to me of the doping elements aren't really new. I mean, I, I'm the one that I sort of took Kara and Steve and the original report sort of at their word that he was pushing the envelopes, trying to get people 
subscriptions for things that they shouldn't have, giving people injections maybe that they shouldn't have. And we get a little bit more detail around that, especially as it relates to this particular, I guess this amino acid, L-cartanine, which is intended to give you some performance enhancing features. He was really testing and pushing the envelope around that. And the only what seemed to me new information from the report was that he was giving people and athletes IVs of that supplement, amino acid, whatever, longer and in higher volumes than were allowed by the world anti-doping standards. So that seemed to be the most egregious part of the doping stuff in it. But more than that, you get real color on how he treated athletes, especially those outside of Rupp and Hesse, who seem to be sort of the privileged, you know, chosen ones in that group. Anybody else who was fighting for their scraps in that group was pressured into taking drugs that they didn't need to from quote-unquote prescriptions for thyroid imbalances and things like that. Asking them to do things they weren't comfortable with. Pressuring them with not just the threats of kind of getting on the outside of the group, but also potentially using his leverage with Nike to kind of pressure them from a contract and financial standpoint. Talking about how Dathan Ritzenheim was basically at risk of getting his salary cut in half because of performance. And so kind of he made the decision, I'm going to do what Salazar said because I can't afford not to. So those elements coming into play, it's sort of like Lance and his, you know, he, there was the doping, but there was also the way he treated people and how he tried to sort of scorched earth anybody who ever accused him. And it seemed with Alberto, it's sort of like the way he treated athletes and pressured them and encouraged them to do things they weren't comfortable with not okay and that's where his real the real indictments of him as a coach come and i don't know how it makes me feel about rup but i do know it makes me not like that group nike because of its affiliation with that group even though i like schumacher's group in that same fold and i come from a camp in the doping world that's sort of like I'd rather you be bread and water, you know, with maybe the occasional fruit juice, fruit juice or vitamin D drops or, you know, Evan Jager was interviewed one time and he's like, occasionally I take Sudafed, (laughs) you know, because (laughs) my my nose gets stopped up. I want to be in that world. That would that would be where I would live. And that's where I want to believe the athletes I I choose to follow and, and cheer for live. And the athletes that live in this kind of gray area governed by Alberto's ethics it's not for me even if it's clean technically by whatever standards so I agree with you ultimately that it's it's the coaching athlete relationship part that he absolutely messed up and some of those accusations are egregious and I would never want to role model as coach myself you know but again I had read all those things and I was uh, I was angry about it um, honestly I mean what what do I matter in the context of what goes on in the monolith of, of Nike and and Alberto's, you know, gold medals and continued incredible performances with athletes. But I did listen to the Kerry Tolofson podcast with Jordan again. I'm referencing that again. And Jordan's gotten absolutely nothing but, I mean, he, was, he, is, he is a father figure to her. And he's not all bad. So, you know, it's not that... It's just the, 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 
that is a dog with a bone that he will not give up and getting the results that he has to get and the ways with which he was trying to get them had has been trying to get them is spooky. And um, you also all I mean, I, I don't want to go down the whole rumor mill world, but having been involved in professional athletics, professional track and field in a small way over the years, you hear lots and lots of of stories about things that are have happened with Alberto and or at least with that group. And um, some of the real details that come out in these papers are sort of it's it's cut from the same cloth. It's sort of the same behavioral ways of, of managing that may make some of the stories that people have told about shipments going right. through the mail and people bringing stuff back from other locations and other things that you know folks have talked about. Um, there's indications that that though there there was already behaviors that were showing that that might happen, and the complete control and lockdown of all of all training and um, medical information for anybody to get um, are are things that then make you question even more how deep into this does it go? Right. And the people that we're talking about are people who shared, right? Robbery, Centro, Rupp, Hase. Shut down, lockdown, no conversation. Right. The only, the only place, the only place that there is a crack in that armor is in Sir, uh, what's his name from the Great Britain, um, Mo Farah. Mo Farah. So there is the chink in their armor, right. where Mo Farah is a lance caliber athlete, and so, and there is a much greater scrutiny in the UK the press on things of this nature and they're looking to flame and take down their heroes all the time so i do think there's a chance that i don't think you're going to get anything much more substantive than this if this is all we've got and if it's getting leaked or if it was leaked or whether it was stolen one way or another um it does seem to be you know patty cake patty cake baker's man and not some horrific thing so i don't know we'll see i still i i i don't know where i'm still gonna and, and your reference to me having to eat crow a little bit, yes. My uh, my complete. Lo- I've always been tentative and hesitant in my love for Alberto and Galen and that crew, but I I I really have a hard time cheering for for at least Alberto as a coach, and and will always take some kind of question mark to how I view him as a as one of the great coaches in the world because of the way he handled dealing with these athletes in in, in ways that he absolutely did not need to do. And I think the one thing to know, especially for me, uh, you know, I, I, I'm the cynic, the skeptic, the one that kind of always questions. As I think about my fan relationship, because that's all it is with Salazar, with Rupp, with that group, with Jordan S.A., with Centro from that same fold, with Shannon, Robbery. That's a world where I'm just conflicted. I'm a fan of the sport. I'm a fan of the U.S. in the sport. I love seeing the results that they get. Um, but but my relationship with them, sort of fan to athlete, is complicated. <laughs> and some people would look and listen to me and say, Chris, you're a hater. You just hate those people. You, you know, you're always throwing cynicism and skepticism around and all of that. And while I do that occasionally... It's much more complicated than that. I'm also, at some level, a fan of what they're doing and can appreciate aspects of what they're doing. 
but it comes with some hedges and and some complications versus others where you know i can wholeheartedly be a fan of emma coburn yep without question without doubts without having a complicated fan athlete relationship i can do the same with jenny simpson with kara goucher with meb and i've I've given them, and some people would say, well, Chris, you haven't really given them the same scrutiny. And that's not true. I read everything. <laughs> I watch everything. I listen to every interview. Yep. And so I've watched a pattern of behavior, of results, of how they interact when these kinds of questions get asked. And all of those things, and I've studied them at the same level I've had you know, these other athletes. And so I can walk away with all that information and say, hey, I can believe wholeheartedly without complication in these athletes versus... You know, this corner of the Oregon Project and Salazar and Centro and Rupp, it's just more complicated. I'm not not a fan, but my relationship is just more complicated. And I think it's important as this type of information comes out that everybody who's listening puts their, you know, first of all, reads the direct information. Correct. Right. Don't take New York Times version of it. While that's a good, pretty good source, you know, you're going to have other sources that, you know, might filter it or choose the things they want to kind of draw out. Go straight to the report. You don't have to read all of it. Read 20 pages, read 10 pages, read a page and just see what it teaches you and you learn. And so that you, when you're talking about it and where you're making decisions about who you support, you can fully back it up with direct information. It's just like anything, politics, you know, or anything else. Just get the direct information, make your own decisions about who you're going to support, what you think about it, what your opinions are. Certainly factor in perhaps what we think into that. And then, you know, and then go root for this sport because there are still people to believe in. And if your relationship is now comp- more complicated with the Oregon Project, fine, because that's what it is for me. And life is messy and complicated. Yes. And no one's I did, perfect. One thing I do want to state, I don't know if you saw this, Chris, and it's probably a bit of minutia that we don't even need to share on this podcast, but it was irritating to me. We, a couple of weeks ago or last week, we, we recommended to you Let's Run, um, dot com as a source to get... Um, initial information, as Chris said, dig deeper. Don't take just their word for it and things. But but they threw serious shade on Mark Wetmore right at the end of that. And I'm not sure if you saw that section. They did because of the doctor. Yeah, that, that the way that Alberto Zalazar became acquainted with Dr. Richard Brown, the endocrinologist from Houston, was through Mark Wetmore's recommendation to Adam Goucher, Kara Goucher's husband, that he go see the greatest ecrino- the, the best endocrinologist in the world. Well, that's a f- very and then and and I don't know if it was Weijo or Rojo Weldon or Robert who basically said, "Oh, this brings to light some. This could bring to light some interesting discussion." That was guys. That was uncalled for. <laughs> that was unnecessary. Not that I'm. I am an apologist for Mark Wetmore. I get it, but don't. That's how you. That's how s- silly stuff starts. Leave it alone. That was a conversation. So somehow. Mark Wetmore figured out there's a really good endocrinologist in the world. And people who have a thyroid issue should go see the best endocrinologist in the world, even if they are or they aren't the best in the world, best runner or their distance runner. Guys, leave that alone. That's that was some serious bullshit you're throwing. Especially to there. end that way. That's how they ended the whole article. That was yeah. bullshit and I don't I don't like that at all. Again, I'm not it's not about the Wetmore thing. It's like that's almost irresponsible journalism in my opinion. I know they were making a point, but they they wrote it in a way that made it seem like well we should maybe somebody should go down this road and look right, into this right and it left it too open ended but it reiterates my point which is just go get the direct information yourself Correct. then make your own decisions about who you're going to cheer for who you're going to hate who you're going to love whatever all right so but that's, please cheer and hate and love yes <laughs> and do it with us yes 
I ran into a listener the other day. He recognized me by my voice, which is so weird. <laughs> but he said, we always apologize for talking about current events in the sport and going too long in this stuff, but we shouldn't. Yes. Because he loved it. So anyway, so we're not going to apologize anymore, but we appreciate you indulging us on this probably too long intro <laughs> to episode 24, part two of our discussion on the coach-athlete relationship. We're going to segue into that now. And we'll start just to kind of bring us back to where we were when the last episode finished with Steve's very important question. And we'll go from there. What will it take? Going back on the goal quickly, though. Go ahead. Yep. Uh, I do think it's worth mentioning because this is a part of, has been a part of my process. We talked about that goal of mine in, in one of the episodes recently. I think it was one of the mental episodes. I don't remember exactly the context, but that conversation as I was preparing, not just for this, but as I was preparing myself for my next round of training, also made me sit back and be like, wait a minute, why was that my goal? Because at the time when I said that to myself and I was in my 20s, I'm like, it was just a number, really. And I probably even at that time wasn't even a sub three hour marathoner, but it was just a number that seemed like far enough away. So as a part of our recent discussion on it, I had to kind of go back and be like, is that the number? reassess whether or not that was the number or if it's just something I'd been kind of artificially carrying with me because I had arbitrarily picked it out of, a, you know, out of the air a long time ago. And anyway, so I came back around to it's that's, that's the number, it, you know, magic, divine, whatever things, the forces of the universe were telling me that was the number then. And it's still the number. So yes, that's the BHAG. How do I get there is the question. I want to also layer in a couple of sub goals to that sure. to that goal just to kind of for context, which I don't think are necessarily BHAG, but that I want to accomplish at some point in this journey. If I were to prioritize my race goals and mention a few others besides that one, that one's obviously the number one most important and I think makes my sphincter pucker the most. But there are two others that matter. One that's more short term, which is that I got to break 60 and run for the water this year <laughs> uh, this will be my seventh attempt i've run 6002 i've run 6007 i've run six t you know six times between 60 and 6115 or something like that and this year i gotta go under 60 so that and maybe that's a that's a that's really crucial it's really cool because that's a that's a what will it take? I mean, you literally are answering what will it take? What will it take for you to have the confidence level to in order to be able to go for the next step is to say, I got to get under this, this thing. Because every time you've done that race, at least as long as I've been coaching you, it's never been the command performance. It's always right. been a step in the process. And right. it's always been sort of a, a piece of the puzzle, one key piece. And um, hats off to Gilbert and his crew um, at Run for the Water for creating a, just an amazing race that is uh, iconic and really cool and I hope never goes away because in, Cent in Central Texas, this is a race that's super hilly. It's 10 miles. There are not many of those around. And it's sort of like a great gut check for marathoners, yeah. half marathoners, 5Kers, 10Kers to kind of figure out where they're at. And so it's a tough course. So if you hear going sub 60 on a 10 mile race, that's not really indicative of Chris's fitness like right. that. I've run faster than that many at times, 3 but or, this, yeah. this is a, th that was, I wanted to make the, the point yeah. of yeah. is that this is a particular course It's probably going to be in another particular space in your progression. As you look towards, you're probably not going to try to run 
super fast at X, right? And, and it's, it's going to be this is going to be one step in the process. So yeah. that's awesome because it's falling in. Also, now your goal is also falling in. What will it take? What will it take? One thing is if you go sub, if you go 50, 59 there, you're like I'm on the path. Yeah. I also that race has a special place for me for whatever reason. It's a local race. It's probably my favorite local race. It's challenging. So there's that element to you it. You also so have a competitive. You also but have a there's guy. also the competitive thing, <laughs> and it's not just with Mark, who Mark who H is, is my uh, Mark H, who's my sort of foil in a lot of local races. But there are also other local athletes that I get to compete with there, and I've gone to head to head with them, and sometimes I've won, sometimes I've lost. Mark H has handed me my ass more than I have in recent years, but. I've made him scared <laughs> many times, you know, and so it's fun tactical experience as well because you actually get to race with people, you know, uh, and I think that brings out the best in you. Certainly when I ran 60.02, I remember I did it. I'd driven back from Dallas. I had an event there. We drove back in the middle of the night. I got back in at like 1 a.m., 2 a.m. Felt like dog shit <laughs> going into that race because I hadn't slept. And had ultimately my best race there, but felt miserable the whole way because it was a race. I was competing, so I dug deep and Mark. And you didn't have any. Me. You didn't have any mental excuses at that point because you'd already gotten rid of every single one of them by all the drama that you had to deal with to get to the starting line. So yeah. at that point, it really just became. You went back to basics. You would have done what you did at five thirty in the morning on a Tuesday or Thursday or Saturday. Yeah, right. You just went back to going through the motions and as a baseball player, get in the batting box. Don't try <laughs> to hit a home run. Right. Get your swing right. And you, you didn't have a choice. You either didn't show up or you showed up and when you showed up, you showed up just going through the motions and doing exactly what you're supposed to do. Yeah. It, it, again, it shows so much how the mental piece of this game is essential and important. But anyway, and there, and there wasn't Three more seconds to be had that day, but there will be in November. I think November 5th is the day this year. So the other goal I want to mention is that at some point, and this doesn't have to be this year, at some point in the context of all of this kind of 240 search, I do want to run another 5K because, as you say, I think battling the demons there mentally, I haven't raced a 5K in probably five or six years. It's been a long time, and I certainly haven't been in the fitness to race a 5K in a long time other than just sort of peripherally you know, kind of tagging on with other fitness, but I w I've never run under 17 flat for the 5k. My 5k PR is 1720 or 1721. Not very impressive really when you look at some of my other races, mm -hmm. but, but I want to get under 17 for the 5k. And I think I've been maybe fit enough to do that at some point, but I've just not ever raced it. And I think that could be an important part of this journey is just getting, tapping into some of that speed at some point. But Anyway, if I were to rank my goals, those three would be at the top of my list right now. There's others related to the half and other distances, but but we won't go there. <clears throat> so what I do with my athletes at this point is I'll say, because I got some key things there. And again, I'm intuitive coach, so I'm not going through the numbers, right? I'm just going down it and saying, I know what the half, I know what the 5K can do to a person. And I know the 5K is a marathon. It's like a plum is a plum, but a prune is a prune <laughs> a plum is a marathon and a prune is a 5k it is a extremely distilled experience same of fruit. being a plum same fruit exactly <laughs> so and it and it is a and you can do it over and over and over again it gives you the shits for sure but <laughs> it, you do it over and over and over again and i think that that is a great right where, where you're at right now um 
continuously checking yourself against 5K workouts, 5K races, occasionally seeing the difference between those two for you. Because I always throw 5K, key 5K workouts in my cycles. Um, I went away from that a couple of years ago when we did big Lydiard cycles, but I've moved back to bringing it in in a sort of everything all the time kind of manner because they're really good gut checks. And they really do tell me pretty clearly how an athlete's going to respond to the marathon pressures because late in some of these key workouts, um, you get exposed. And so I would suggest to you, continuously using that race distance i mean because the run for the water 10 miler is just a key moment in time and it'll always be at least as long as you're being competitive sort of a sort of a a, a sort of a threshold to check yourself but a 5k is one on a given day in a given circumstances with competition um and because we've got two things going on here you've got the competition in yourself and you've got the competition against others mixed in in. and so the competition with yourself can be using those 5k workouts and or occasional races to uh just check in and not looking at them as reading the tea leaves at the bottom of a cup of tea and saying this is exactly indicative although i will tell you for an athlete like you who's very similar to allison you're 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 becoming an aerobic monster allison is an aerobic monster because she had no choice to not be one does i mean if I take your saw, if I go through and do a, a muscle biopsy of you, and we check you, no matter how long you spent time spent running, playing soccer, you are not speed, fast twitch, muscle guy. Right. You're, you 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 worked those to the best of your ability, and you probably got more of them than you ever could. But you're you're type two B. I mean, you're not you're not gonna right. be giving us the 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 pop. Like I I'll I'll, I'll get you off the line. If I'm a fat and old man in a wheelchair, guaranteed, <laughs> yeah. right? Because I've got a lot more of the fast twitch muscles in me. Right. Um, but you don't. So you're now continuing to the. You're getting to the point where you're an aerobic. You're you're a sound aerobic athlete, and you're going to continue to get more and more. You're not. You're going to take you more time to get to be the aerobic monster that Allison is. But you're getting there. You've had some disrupts and some hiccups lately in your training, given the injuries that you've had, which, you know, really are the real challenges you have now that we have to kind of, if we're going to be, you know completely open about that these are the real big things you have not only the physiological challenge you have of dealing with the fact that you're behind the eight ball now nearly a year right i mean you have had some ups and downs that process but we're a year down this road of being in and out and in and out it hasn't been absolutely zero mileage week in week out month in month out but it's been your worst 12 months of training since, Since I started running. Yes. I missed five by the You're probably fall. more consistent in the time that you were working and going to school and doing other things than you were even in this right. concept. Yeah, I not missed because five you didn't, out of 12 months. Not because you didn't want to, just because you couldn't. So, you know, we've, we've got to continue to keep, we got to keep working that aerobic system. We're going to have to do some key things training-wise to do that. But I'm, I just want to go back to, I think that this goal of the 5K is a great sort of spotlight to shine on your current fitness, not indicative of your long-term goal but more indicative of where you are at the moment and it'll always be a great check and when the worst of days happen on a you know when we do a uh a monogetti fartlek or if we do an aussie 5k or you go out and run a race you're gonna know that all right this is a little tiny microcosm of where i'm at and i'm in the shit so i gotta get somewhere else or a man i'm starting to turn it around because when allison ran that that ran that aussie 5k at the time that she did I was like, we're good, we're ready. Yeah. I mean, we're ready for damn near anything. And I and I know you know what all those things mean at this point. And it's a great way for you to sort of check yourself. And and 
everyone, listeners, this is what I do with my athletes. I just get into the minutia of it and I say, here are the key things. Like right now, what you need to do is continue to shine a kind of ugly, bright, mirrored light on your face to find out where your blemishes are in this key time because you know you're ugly. And so yeah. later we're going to make you look like the most beautiful you know, model in the world. But right mm-hmm. now we got to work your ugly. So let's talk about the ugly because you know, the last year for me has been ups and downs. The stress fracture was a perfect storm of things, which I don't want to get into why that happened. But, you know, vitamin D deficiency and some other things caused that issue. But the other subsequent issues, I don't think were necessarily a systemic issue. It was more the fact that I was behind the eight ball and then kept rushing back too fast. And then as a result of rushing back too fast, kind of got injured again and it restarted the cycle. So let's talk about blemishes or things I need to work on. One thing that I've thought oh, about next on my list, strengths yeah. and weaknesses. Yeah. So <laughs> a couple things I've that I've thought about from that perspective. One is that I need to get back to first principles when it comes to aerobic development and base building again. So part of the thing I've been thinking about is doing really a fundamental base period over the next two, three months, whatever it is to get back to just consistent mileage, you know, and maybe higher than I normally am when I'm training with quality work, but you know, 80 miles a week or something like that. Um, and just hammer those out consistently, staying healthy, doing a little bit of strides and a little bit of straights and curves and stuff like that, just to keep those couple tempo runs, yeah, a couple tempo, just to keep close the, a long run, you know, the yep. speed there, but really focus on mileage. Cause I had sort of shortcut a lot of that trying to build back, as I did over the last year and it cost me because I didn't have the right foundation. Cause that's, cause that's your go-to. So just to give people context, you know, I said where that, what Chris's strength is his aerobic. He, he is aerobic. He can be an aerobic monster. He's just not quite there yet. I mean, I mean, this dude, you're really fast. You've run really <laughs> fast. So that's not, I mean, I, I mean, somebody right. who's, you know, sub 245, that's not, he's not, you know, you know, something to snuff your nose at, but this is his personal journey. And it's like, you are really good at doing the aerobic stuff. So let's go back to getting yeah. those fundamental principles. Yeah. It's exactly so what we so need to do. So that's one thing. Yeah. Second thing, that's a weakness and it's a weakness that's only getting more important to address as I age is strength. I had started sort of a basic strength routine at the beginning of the year as one of my, call it a resolution, but as one of my initiatives this year to try to prevent some of these injuries. That got short-circuited by my elbow fracture nine weeks ago. But I need to definitely incorporate a sustainable, for me, minimal but focused strength program to make sure that I can withstand the muscle atrophy of age and you know, the injuries that might come with that. So that to me is an opportunity area that might be at the top of the list of sort of running support things that I need to worry about. There's some diet stuff that I need to clean up and, and 
Not right now. Maybe some other thing. You're right. Uh, you're already too skinny. Maybe I would rather you be, I'd rather you go back to fat Chris. I loved it when you were fat Chris. <laughs> Maybe some other things. It makes it a lot easier for you to run. I mean, by the way, Chris is never fat, but Chris is particularly, uh, he's one of, he's one of those, he's one of those sensitives about this area. Oh, yeah. and he, I he can always, yo-yo a little bit yeah. with my training. Yeah. But. And it is good for you when you get in that space, you get stronger. It's probably really good that you're not given the way that you're coming back right now to be in that space where you're like a little lean enough to get to the point where you can get there for sure. Right. Um, so anyway, so my main thing in terms of other things I need to worry about is strength and a sustainable routine there. Other than that, there's certainly other things I could do and worry about. But look, I got three kids. I've got, you know, a role in this business and I'm a coach myself, so I have limited time. So if I were to focus initially, it's base strength, physical or, or you know, muscle strength and, you know, and then and then. 10k or not 10 mile training block to get to that sub 60 maybe do a 5k around there as well because you can do a couple different races with those distances and then right now i have on my schedule at least i've signed up for the houston marathon as another potential marathon to go after i've also signed up for austin and i have the ability to sign up for boston if we want i'm not married to any one of those three as a command performance but i do want to choose one probably leaning towards houston because i've never really raced it there and I like the speed of that course and usual weather there and so forth. But I'm open to debate on my next command performance for the marathon. So I, I think that <clears throat> it doesn't matter which you choose. There's benefits. There's costs. There's benefits to others. Than, there's benefits to some than others, right? Number one, you need a marathon under your belt. And we've used this in your career to great success of giving yourself an, what we call an 85% marathon effort performance to line us up appropriately for next level command performance kind of efforts. You know, you really, that really worked well. That didn't come up with that. You came up with it yourself. Well, can you give people a little background to what you did there? You, yeah, you got your I mean, BQ, it sort of by right? happened. It yep. happened by accident, really. I mean, Boston 2013 happened. The bomb went off. And... Watching that on TV from home, I said, I got to be there next year. I told my wife that that evening. I said, I got to be there next year. But I didn't because I hadn't raced in that window a marathon. I didn't have a current BQ. So I had to go get one. I was training to have a command performance at BCS or at Dallas that became BCS. Yeah. But needed to get a BQ before the September cutoff. And so I signed up for the Sioux Falls Marathon of all places thinking it might be cool. It was this hot there that day as it was here in Austin. And I had to go get that result, which for me was about 85%. I ran a three-hour race right. to get my BQ with a comfortable sort of registration window. And and at the time, didn't really think of it as a grand plan thing. It was just like, I just need to do this because I want to be there in 2014 for everybody, right? And But it turned out to be a great building block. Yeah, it is. I think that that 85% effort is something... I don't know where I got it from or who I stole it from because I didn't certainly come up with it myself. But I'd already known that as a basic training principle that was important and essential to utilize occasionally where you needed it. But after your experience of doing that, I decided that's something that's super valuable. And, and, and many of the sort of race prep workouts that I line up for people are, are based on that kind of principle. If I can't get them to sign up for a race, it works. But the point I was making is that when you do sign up for something like when you – it could be that Houston could be an effective – opportunity to do that depending on where our fitness shows because this is the other thing people don't that we haven't talked about yet that's so crucial you can set a command performance 
But unless it's the Olympic trials or the Olympic games, it's a moving target or the Boston marathon. <laughs> it's a moving target. It's always a moving target. It's not. And if you don't treat it as a moving target, you're crazy. And I, I, I at some point in time, I stopped coaching those athletes who don't treat it as a moving target. Um, because it's process based and you have to just take what's given to you at the moment that you're given to you when you're in training and knowing when you're knowing where and when to race and how and when to give a good effort. I mean, basically at this point in time, let's just talk brass tags. You spent X number of dollars to sign up for the Houston marathon. You're not going to get those money. That, that, those dollars are not coming back to you. So why would we miss an opportunity to take advantage of that if we had it? Right. Right. So I'm not saying that you don't make it a, a race that you get ready for, but you look at you. You're smart. You, you chose a couple of races and said there's a lot of variability here. We'll see what happens and maybe we can utilize these things to get where we need to be. Let's just wait and see. We got a lot of stuff to figure out with you. You still have <laughs> one more cut to get on you before we even get to this point. Right. right. So first is I'm with you on terms of what it'll take. Let's get a little clearer on what you said with strength perspective, because we're going to need to actually cover this as an entire series probably in this podcast i hate the word strength training because it makes people think that they're supposed to do bench presses i hate you're i'm not this is not critical of you it's just critical of the term i and i don't like cross training because cross training is something people do when they're injured (laughs) the real term is supplemental training it is the thing that makes you into the real runner you want to be and supplemental training falls into a wide variety of things and i think mental training is actually a form of supplemental training but one of the key parts of supplemental training that you need to work on is getting back to being sure that you're neuromo- neurologically, neuromuscularly, and in the patterning of the muscle groups that you have, that they're, number one, working for you in the, in the challenges that running 26.2 miles create, and number two, that they're insured to be able to get you ready for any other little thing that might happen, which means you've got to do all the things that make you avail, able to play a little game of soccer or a game of pickup basketball, a little breach volleyball, or grabbing your kid when he falls down on this. You know, I, I don't know how many marathoners I've worked with who said, I stepped off a curb and I was injured for six months. <laughs> well, that's not doing any supplemental training. Because if you, I mean, it makes sense when you trip and fall on a trail and you break and you hit your elbow, <laughs> you break it. That, I'm sorry. I'm going to still try to figure out a way to get you out on the trails because I think it's the best supplemental training you can ever do. I might not win that battle. But uh, anyway, it, we'll see. it's another version of supplemental training is like getting all those sagittal planes and those cross purposes worked so that you're able to be the uh, as best, as good an athlete as you can without sacrificing Focused intent on Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday as when we do our main training sessions. Right. So supplemental training is going to be key to you. It's key for you no matter what because of your athletic background. The, those who are more athletic formerly have a much more need for this supplemental training because it has, it has been what has got you to the place where you had the successes you had when you were 24. Right. Um, and so as you age, you need to continue to work those things much more. What supplemental training is, we can talk a lot more about that at other times, but it is this giant sort of mushroom underneath all which all these other things that happen besides how many miles a week you run, how much quality you're doing at the 10K pace or 5K pace or marathon pace or half marathon pace. And it's a really crucial and important thing. And for you, yes, the I'll, I'll, I'll circle back to basics, supplemental training. And I'm going to repeat and add as your coach to say, continue to put 5K focus in the cycle 
not in the summer when we do our mileage base. Yep. Um, but as we get into, you know, you did this a couple years ago where you did the distance challenge. You ran the 80s 8K. It's a great way to check yourself. Yep. You jump into another. And 5K is not the exact distance, but 5K it is, but you can play around with it. Sure. Just jump, do some workouts, and then jump into some races that don't mean anything, that are just grab ass and having fun, that don't have a competitive thing other than this, the competitive thing that sort of gets you up in the morning anyway. Because they're going to be great checks and great ways for you to look at yourself in the mirror with a pretty bright light on to say, where are my blemishes and how close am I to getting where I need to be? And you're a guy who can take frank and brutal honesty. Um, that's another thing. Many of the athletes, I, I'm having a much more concrete and like critical discussion with you about where we're at because that's the way that you handle information and you deal best with it. There are other athletes that I work with that I lie through my teeth <laughs> straight up and tell them that they're amazing or I tell them that they're terrible, neither of which I necessarily mean, but because I'm trying to get them to take this meeting that we're doing into some sort of key takeaways where they can sort of move forward so a couple of other key things that are really important here chris weekly mileage goal your sweet spot as we've talked about many times this is crucial in any build-up phase where do you think that's going to sit in this cycle if if other things don't change so when i broke myself leading into boston i was doing 80 ish miles a week in that final 10 weeks I think that was too much in the context of everything else that was going on. So I should have done that the first 10 weeks of the build and backed up to 70, 75 for the final 10 weeks, right? So I kind of had it out of order at the time, which wasn't the thing that sent me over the edge, but it was probably a contributor. And you know me, I'm good about running easy, so it's not necessarily about the paces I'm running, but there was too much volume combined with intensity probably at the same time, along with vitamin deficiencies and other things coming together that broke me but i do think that 80 to 85 range is probably where i need to be to get the right aerobic foundation because i i spent some time there when i was in my mid-20s training i've been there a few times training with rogue 10 weeks or so last year but i haven't spent a lot of time there and you know watching allison do what she does it's obvious to me that a big part of her progression is just that consistent 100 miles a week. I can't do 100 miles a week. Yep. But I know I can do 80. I've done a 100-mile week. I've done a 90-mile week. Physically, I think I can handle it if I don't have the same intensity. So I think in the base period, I would want to build to that 80 range, 80, 85, hold it there for however long you think I should, and you know, and then come down a little bit as we start to refine. Yep. So we'll we'll... Again, a, a running, a mileage sweet spot. You know, you guys have heard us talk about um, Coach V Hill's 100 miles a week threshold. Um, but Chris, I would never recommend to run 100 miles a week because his work-life balance won't allow it. So it makes no sense to try to put that in. Allison has now spent somewhere in the line of 8 to 10 years developing this sort of day-to-day -day structural balance within her work life and everything else to ensure that that happens. She doesn't have three kids she's um she is on the road a lot she's got a lot of other things but she's also been doing it for so long that that's her that's her that is her sweet spot and she knows it and as a coach i had recently had some athletes ask me about team rogue recently and they said so do you talk about nutrition 
race nutrition. <laughs> I don't talk about your day-to-day nutrition. Why? Because you pay me $105 a month and that doesn't, a nutritionist, <laughs> you pay a $105 for one session. Right. Go talk to the nutritionist because they're better at it than I am. But, but, I, but the key thing is, is that they also asked me this other crucial question, which is, do you write individualist, individualized training programs? And, you know, we've, we 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 flirt with this a lot, and a lot of people. And the way that the the way that people want to talk about it is that some kind of idea that individualized training plans are the best. Um, I I have not seen that played out in any scenario in my coaching career ever. I think a plan that's dialed in to the idiosyncrasies that Chris McClung has, done in a group environment. That where Chris and I can look at each across the table at each other or have a discussion at any given point in time where the trust level is at the level that it needs to be, where he can say to me, I don't think you're giving me what I need and I don't think I'm getting what I need or I'm not, I'm not, I'm hurting where I'm hurting and why am I hurting here allows me to then create the individualization with a one-on-one athlete where I needed to. But if I created a plan for Chris McClung that was nine months out designed for you individually throughout the process. That doesn't doesn't make any sense to me. I cannot even conceive of a scenario where that could be successful for people. So I'm not railing against individualized training. I'm just saying I don't see the context in which it helps because that means you're going to be doing a lot of runs all by yourself. And we've talked about this, Chris. Group training is magic. And it lifts you to another level. So what I say is let's keep that idea of where is your – where are you – within the context, sometimes you want to be one of many. And other times you want to be the one. And let's just ensure as in our athlete coach relationship that when you need Chris the one, that you tap me on the shoulder and you let me know that that's what you need. Because you know me as a coach, you know I'll get there. I'll get there pretty quick. But I'm not going to be there at 530 in the morning with 45 other people around us. So we've got to watch how that plays out and where that goes. And so, yes, you're individually coached. But you're coached in a group training environment. So let's keep that in mind and how we're going uh, to move forward consistently. That means early on, you're going to need more touches. Later on, at the very end of the cycle, you're going to need more touches. But in between, you're going to have a lot of room to roam. Just don't hang yourself with that extra <laughs> rope. You know I won't. <laughs> I know. You won't, so, but others yeah. might. <laughs> right. <laughs> so summarizing and kind of r- pulling this together, current – Training block focused on run for the water, November 5th. Command performance. No, first, mileage base. No, no, I know. I'm backing yeah. up from okay, okay, But yeah, sorry. so that kind of being the short-term goal. Beyond that, we're not going to worry too much. There's a marathon on the other side of it somewhere. I'll be frank with you. I don't have a goal for 60 minutes, sub-60 minutes for run for the water because I already know I can get it in my sleep. So I don't even want to think about it. Like, <laughs> I don't even want to go there. You can. You can go there as long as you want to. But just so you know, I don't care. You you already are so there that if you just give me the last two weeks <laughs> to get you ready for it, I can get you ready for it. So I'm not worried about that. What I'm mostly worried about is how do we get you back and I guess that's it, right? So in a sense, you're right. Yeah. That's it. You I know mean, you're back. That's the signpost for me. I understand Correct. that. I mean, even in my head, I know that it's. it doesn't make my sphincter pucker to talk about sub-60 at Run for the Water. But that is a, a milestone that I can build to. And, you know, my magic in running comes from my aerobic base, as you talked about. I can beat people that are faster than me in races because of that so i need the time to develop that it's like i'm not going to turn a light switch and then tomorrow be able to go out and run 
you know, sub right. 60. So we've got to kind of layer the cake. And so to me, that will be the icing for this period where we start to rebuild the cake. Just be sure we don't get in a hurry. We can extend our base cycle as long as we yeah, need to exactly. to get there because we don't really have a command performance right if now. I have a massive you got a base, Houston, you got an Austin, you got a Boston potentialities. So we don't have to go there too soon. If I have a massive base on three weeks or four weeks of sharpening, I could probably break 60. I think you could do it on zero weeks of sharpening, <laughs> okay. but we're not going to go enough. there. Right? We'll just Fair see enough. where that lines up. Right. So so that's a milestone. Backing up from there, it's well. That kind of answers my question because part of it was: is there any race-specific training for that race? And what you're saying is, eh, maybe, maybe not. You're going to get it anyway in Team Rogue. Let's you're see gonna, where we you're are. You're going to get it anyway in Team Rogue because the way we're going to line this up is we're going to go. We ha- we this summer we have a two basic tracks we've got folks on. Right, we got a speed-based track which is going to be lower volume, a little bit of turnover, going to f- have some fun with some 5K and 10K work. In a way that I don't do with marathoners normally because if I do it when they're in their main marathon training, they can get hurt. So they're going to do lower volume, maybe 10 to 15 mile, ten to fifteen percent lower volume than they do. But they're not going to worry about it because we're going to get some wheels and we're going to work on what we've talked about many times is getting better economy. And we're going to have fun with it. We're going to do some painful lactate like bomb workouts or we're going to do some other things. We're going to have fun with it. But the other track that folks are going to be on is the mileage track. And that's going to be one quality workout a week consistently designed around continuing to tap at each of the energy systems necessary to stay in touch with the things that we need to. But we're really going to be looking at what's my weekly mileage point? What's my monthly mileage point? What's my mileage point during the summer? And you'll follow that cycle through. Then when we go into this and we go into, um, into August or September, as we switch, depending on how other people are getting ready in the group that Chris trains in, we have a huge number of people getting ready for one key race called California International Marathon the first weekend in December and anybody not doing that cycle is in a big challenge because anybody that knows me as a coach they know I go where the energy goes and if I've got that many people trying to have big races on that day that means there's going to be some really big races that day and a lot of my energy is going to go there so you're going to have to keep in mind if you run a race at Houston or Austin or Boston that we're going to have to, you're just going to have to keep in keep in play but what you're going to do is do some basic fundamental training in that pay play in that time frame which will hit a number of the physiological places that you need to while again seeing is your sweet spot higher than 70 from a mileage perspective or is it 75 or could we actually squeeze it to 80 because if we could get it to 80 and you could sustain that on a day-to-day basis weekly basis with two weeks up one week down two weeks up one week down the the volume that you'll get at your next ama- next command performance will be balanced with another 100, 150, 200 miles in that window. That is a huge, that for an aerobic monster, you're just layering on strengths and you're right. making stronger and stronger and stronger, which to repeat where we went with Allison, that's why Allison had this, she did the work that she needed to before the trials and she had this bump, but she didn't have a race to prove that she'd had it. She kept doing that volume and volume and volume because she's an aerobic monster. And bam, if it didn't give her much with literally, you want to, why I don't care about run for the water. <laughs> Look what we did with Allison. I like two 10 K workouts, one five K workout, put her bell on it. And she just PR'd like, I'm not a genius as a coach. There's no way I'm saying that. I'm just saying the athlete was ready. Yeah. And so you, you, it's that body of work that continuously stays there. So yep. anyway, so the build to that is base, build it. You know, I'm going to give myself five to six weeks kind of build to that point hold it, do some of those quality workouts here and there to sprinkle in the speed, 
and then we can talk in more detail on the supplemental training that goes with that to, to keep me strong. I'm also talking about mobility. Yes. You know, keeping everything working, especially ankles and hips and things like that. So, and then beyond that, we'll let the story write itself. We know no, what you're, knowing we know that there's another marathon, but we won't. We know your command. We know what your statement of purpose is. So we, we're we're not going to be we're not going to be diverted from what we're trying to get accomplished. We're going sub two forty. Period. Where we do it, who the hell cares? <laughs> right. We're going to get it done. And and you, unlike Allison or other athletes who might be trying to get ready for an Olympic trials or get a qualifier, you don't have any of those challenges. So you really get to pick your point. You really get to point it out. And you also have the ability to sort of play six to eight weeks prior, six to eight weeks after, and, and, and mess with it a little bit to get to where you need to be. So as long as we've got our statement of purpose, again, folks, if we can't, we can't say it enough, when you know your statement of purpose, nearly every other thing falls into place. And you don't have a question about where you're going. You don't wonder what the path is to success. You just know that that's where you want to be. And then things take over. You train consistently. You follow basic sound fundamental principles and you get there. It, it's it's going to happen. So we don't have to say it's here. because Now, one thing to tell people is that's because Chris is a seasoned, long-term athlete who's raced at every level I mean, I raced, every, raced every marathon around that's of quality marathon. I mean, you haven't run some of the key ones, but you're, you might choose to do a Tokyo or a Berlin or a Rotterdam or something else that some of my athletes have occasionally where it might fit. But you don't need that special. You're going to pick your race on a special day and make it happen, whereas some other athletes, like those athletes going for big trials qualifiers and those other things, they're a lot more circumscribed in terms of the window, and so I have to press them a little bit. Another thing that happens with a lot of our beginner runners or or, or uh, just sub sort of elite level runners. They want to get their BQ. And so we run up against the September the deadlines. numbers. Yeah. And we've run up against the each year deadline. And we run up against the stupid what is the actual time for the year deadline. And so there's other things that we have to play in. But you're really in a nice flexible space to eventually pick your place. And how long does it take to get ready for a marathon? If you're doing fundamental training? Three weeks, according to Allison. Well, I'd say six <laughs> to eight. I think Allison, Allison's running 100 plus miles a week. So you. But your point is a good one yeah. and one that is a good reminder for me that I don't have to rush it. That if you focus on the process, the result will come. And your age is worrying you. I don't think age is really a worry until you reach about 45 I think at 45 is when you're going to start noticing the effects of age. I'm not denying that. You're going to know that you need a little more recovery and you need to eat a little differently and you need to take care of your body a little bit more of a way in a different way. But I also think that your lifestyle as your goal and your command, as your, your idea of what your purpose is starts to get more and more, you know, aligned. I've watched in you over the last three, two to three years, the, the level of commitment to the little details in you have come along because your goal has gotten bigger and bigger. And as you've gotten closer and closer to the goal, you realized how important each of those little individual things are. And so you start to take care of them. And, and, and a coach, you know, at the collegiate, at the pre at the high school level and at the collegiate level, the coach has to do those things for their athletes. In my experience as a post-collegiate coach, I can't do that for them I, because they're, they're grownups, they're adults. And I can't do it for you, and I won't right. do it for you. So you've got to figure it out. And when you do, then I'm even more effective. Like now you've got – because I can't make you do those things. And if I try to make you do those things, you're never going to feel like you got done the things that you needed to do. So you always feel like you're at a deficit. So you have to be in that position to get there. And when you get there, 
you're ready. You know, I mean, it, it's this the old story about anybody that's going to be great at anything. They have to go through their matriculation phase. They have to go through their, you know, where you're where you're working on the craft. And once you've worked on the craft enough and you've watched, I'm not saying I'm a master, but you've watched other athletes. In this case, Allison was your master, like a, a master craftsman. You saw she has ups and downs. She has strengths and weaknesses. She knows the things she has to work on and she does them. She doesn't talk about it. Those aren't, those aren't the magical things. That's just like brushing your teeth. Hmm. Why do you brush your teeth? Cause you don't want your breath to stink. Right. Not that you necessarily want to keep your teeth in your mouth. It's like you want you don't want you you you've got other reasons for doing it. And Allison's doing those things. Not, not it's she's doing it because that's what it takes to be the person and the athlete that she wants to be. And you're in that space. So anyway. So, do we have it? Is that it? Uh, what what I would say what are we missing? nothing. The only thing that we're missing in that missing that the athletes won't that the listeners won't get to hear is. The next two conversations you and I have, which is where are we at and how far are you from getting on the path? Um, a great coach at the Dallas Metroplex area who is a huge Lydiard fan. Um, I'm blanking on his name right now. He's the coach of uh, all the high school kids uh, up there. Sorry, I'm blanking on your name. But he used this Lydiard principle basically is you got to be fit enough to train. And what I'm going to be asking you repeatedly, Terry Jessup, excuse me, Terry Jessup is who said that. What I'm going to ask you repeatedly over the next three to six weeks is, are you fit enough to train? Are you fit enough to even get in the space where we can do that? We know you've got a few other challenges to jump over here personally that you've got a, another yep. little surgery that has to be managed that's probably going to take care of itself. And then you're going to have to get that those initial base miles going on. And how long is it going to take us to be in that place where we're fit enough to train? And by me asking you that, that doesn't mean you're not going to be at Team Rogue Workouts. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be doing the, doing the things that need to be done. It's just that you know that getting ready for, in this case, this little 10-miler that we're talking about is that's when you're starting to get ready for that. That's when you're fit enough to really start doing the work to get there. And so that's one thing that we need to tell people is, you're not fit enough to train when you decide that you want to do something. <laughs> you're fit enough to train when you've done the workload necessary and the supplemental training necessary to put yourself in a position to take the stresses on your body of combining volume at an appropriate level and quality at an appropriate level in the appropriate balance for you as an athlete and for the group that you're in to get towards the things that you want to accomplish. So there's a lot of little base stuff that people might not hear that the coach and athlete do. But in the one-on-one -on -one session, no, we hit the, the main points. We know why you're doing it. We know what you want. We know the things that you have, challenges that you have, and the strengths that you have to get yourself there. And we talked around a whole lot of other little things that are supplementary to that that are my little ways of asking my athlete, are you sure? Are you full of shit? <laughs> Do you really want the thing that you want? And what the reason, one of the reasons why you and I haven't had many of these one-on-ones is that we get to see each other pretty consistently, and we get to talk about them. You give me great updates on a consistent basis. And number two, and so I see you and my intuitive strengths are played out really well because I'm feeling when you're down and when you're up and where things are going. But we, we, we haven't done those things also primarily because you're really dialed in. So using you as an example has been really in, can be really educational for folks to see it, but it's really important to say, Chris has his shit together <laughs> and he's really pretty far down the line on a lot of this stuff. And if I had this conversation with other folks, I might not have gone past point one or point two 
And if I didn't get past them, then I'm just going to go straight to strengths and weaknesses. I'm going to poke some holes underneath. I'm going to poke some holes underneath their boat, and I'm going to wait to see how I have to patch it up. <laughs> Eventually, I'm going to have to take that boat, put it into harbor, and fix the whole fucking bottom of the hull to get it where I need to be. But I wasn't there, and you, and you have a seaworthy, ready ship, ready to go. And those things might play out a little bit differently for other athletes in a coach-athlete conversation. So that's what I would say. Yeah, and we. And and we know most importantly what I have to do next. <laughs> so yes. we got to that. We know what you know what's on the horizon race wise, and and I have a roadmap in my head, which I'd already kind of grafted, but I wanted to confirm. And obviously, you know, we've course corrected it through the discussion. But but that's the idea: is that you have a purpose, a goal, and then a roadmap. Yeah, and, and one important thing is is if Chris weren't at the place that he is at, I would have actually pinned him down on a on a race. I would have said, I wouldn't have necessarily said Houston, Austin, or Boston. I just would have said Houston, Austin, or Boston, right? But with you now, I know those aren't even the key things, that there is some future race, and we have enough trust in each other to know that there is one. He may not be able to put his finger on on a, on a registration button, or he might even at this, it might be so far out that he can't register for that race. It could be Houston. It could be New York city, 2018. I mean, th- who knows where it is? We don't know, but we trust each other and trust the, the process enough to say we don't need that. But with a less experienced athlete, I'm going to pin them down and I'm going to get them to give me something. So I at least have a way station or a gate with which I can then move to the next thing, whether it's success or failure at that point won't really matter to me. It'll be more important to say, all right, are we, are we really where we are or are we full of shit? Are we moving down the road where we need to be? Or do you want this verbally more than you want it in reality? Your statement of purpose is a great idea, but not a true, you know, a true path with heart with you. So it is a little bit, there are some caveats here with this sure. conversation that we've had that I have a, I have a, a model, a model athlete I'm working with. And so I get to sound like a, I get to sound like a really good guy, even as much crap I've given you. But uh, if I'm working with other athletes, that's why some people say, you're so mean. <laughs> well, I am because we're talking about what I think is the real, the real, the real nitty gritty yeah. of what, who you are as a human being and what you're doing. And if you're full of shit, I want to know, you know, I don't want to work with people who are full of shit. So anyway, thanks. Thanks for being a great athlete, Chris. So yeah, hopefully that gave people some insight, kind of the window into this conversation. And maybe you learned something about me at the same time. And now you have a journey to follow along and maybe root for as I try to go after this BHAG we talked about. Wrapping this up, I wanted to cover off on some kind of summary takeaways, whether we explicitly covered them or or maybe they just kind of came out of it as takeaways. But what are some tips that we can give athletes about their coach-athlete relationships, whether they're with you and I or other coaches, so that, they can use those to anchor those those relationships and i wrote down three as i was preparing mm-hmm. for this so i thought i'd mention those and you can throw in others sure. one and use the word already trust is really important in my opinion as an athlete you have to trust your coach and you have to seed a lot of decision making to them and if you're not willing to then you should question whether or not that's the right coach for you also if you're not willing to you will not have a great starting line experience. Right. And the gift that a coach gives their athlete is not fitness. It is not a race plan. It is not a strategy. It is a great starting line experience. Coaches out there, if you're not doing that, you're full of shit. 
That's my job is to put an athlete on a starting line feeling like they know they can do the thing that they need to do. As Allison said, she was scared to death, but she knew she could do it. I did my job, right? So that's it. That's trust. That's vulnerability. That's the willingness to be open. Anyway, I just yes. wanted to say that, that that's so crucial. It's, it's, and it, that is why that meeting with the coach and the athlete is so important is the athlete is asking to give – they are giving the coach trust. And a coach that's not willing to be person enough to hear them, yeah, they need to get a new job. <laughs> and, and to me, that's also different than saying – you agree with everything that the oh, coach absolutely. says, right? It's different because it's okay to question. It's absolutely. okay to ask questions. It's okay to have the dialogue and debate, especially rela- around specifics within the context of your training because that helps the coach understand you better and then as a result, t- cater the training to you better. And so that dialogue, that friction that can happen in the relationship is important, that discussion, but you ultimately have to trust. And there are point maybe in those friction moments where you just have to say, hey, I listen, I'm going to listen to you because you're my coach. And then you'll look for that play out over the line. And the good coaches get it out. You know, they, 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 What I mean by that is that you'll have a subsequent workout at another time. I have many athletes who tell me when I ask them to run three times 5K, start half, first 5K at, half, at marathon pace, second 5K at half marathon pace, next, marathon, next 5K faster than that. There's a lot of people who don't have the time in their day to get that in. They don't do it. But Chris, I tried to pull that workout one time because I thought I was scaring people too much. And you were like, bring it back, man. That (laughs) one's got to stay there because it is, it's important. And so yeah, that day I'll stand there and say, do this workout and shut up and run, like shut up and run. But that means that after that workout or someplace in time in the next three to six weeks, I'm going to get a physiological response that, and I'll, as a good coach, I'll check back in with them and say, do you feel it now? Do you know what I was saying? And if they say no, 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 then I say, then, then we look at it and we say, maybe we need to adjust and maybe I got it wrong and I'm not hearing you right. There's other things that might be going on or there just is no trust. And then you, you adjust. But usually the coach will, when you do that, Chris, when you seed and say, on this day, although I don't think this is the thing I should do, I'm going to do it anyway. You, you're, not at, you're not being so vulnerable that you're not, still the master of your domain and the captain of your ship you're still saying you're you're saying to the coach i'm going to trust you on this show me the money later on yeah and the show me the money part is what is my second point which is that the dialogue is important we just alluded to that you have to engage your coach especially if you don't understand there are times when we as coaches make decisions that have a hundred reasons behind them and they may be even tough decisions for us. I know there are times when I'm thinking, do we do this? Do we do that? Or for this athlete, should I tell him this or should I tell him that? And ultimately I fall on one side of that because I use my best information and intuition to fall what I think is the best side of it. But, but there's always a debate in my head often. And so the athletes are guaranteed to have those same debates. And so when you have questions, when you're not sure, when you think something might not be right for you, Ask the question, why are we doing this? Why is this right for me? And engage in the discussion because it may not change what happens or what the outcome is or what workout you do, but it's going to educate your coach about where you're coming from. And it might also play into their decision because they may have been thinking about all the same things and it may have, it may actually push them a different way because you're having doubts or whatever it may be. So always engage in the discussion, not just these one-on-ones, but when you have questions or aren't sure, talk about it. Yep. I agree. I, I, you said it. You said so it perfectly. The last point I was going to make, which is sort of related, which is that you have to you have to realize that your coach isn't perfect. <laughs> there's, 
right? Like, no one, no one who I coach no, doesn't doesn't thinks that I am perfect. That's right. for sure. Well, or the ones that do are the ones who are in tre- deep trouble. Yeah, right. It's <laughs> exactly. Like your coach isn't perfect, and they're not trying to be perfect. And coaches make mistakes. Sometimes we give athletes the wrong workout. Sometimes we tell them the wrong thing, not because we're doing something intentionally wrong, but because the coach is learning too, learning about you as an athlete, learning about their process learning about how you respond to their process. There's so many things that work where the coach is growing is in, in parallel to the athlete's growth that means that you're going to make mistakes. And this journey is one that's not you separately from your coach or one where you're sort of subservient to your coach. It's one where you're going on this journey together. You talk about win losses, how you personally sort of write a one in the win column when somebody gets their goal and a zero or a, and a one in the loss column when they don't. I think about similarly what I tell my athletes is that I'm as invested in their goals as they are. When they don't get them, I hurt like they do. And this is a journey that you're walking through together. And so as a part of that journey, your coach is learning about you just like you're learning about them. You're growing together. You're becoming better as a team as you have accumulated experiences. And it's important to remember that, that, it's, it's a relationship that is growing. It's not something that's static or one way or that has to be perfect because all those mistakes along the way that you make as a coach or you make as an athlete, you learn through together and then ultimately become a better team together. So that's my third takeaway. Yeah, I, I'm with you. And I, I would just make a little refinement to that in the sense of saying, you know, the way that we've modeled um, in Western society, or at least in American society, the coach-athlete relationship is sort of a top-down thing, right? which is the coach is the boss, we, our baseball coach, our football coach, and, and many of the tropes and, and sort of things that we've seen from those coaches is that they're the ones making all the decisions. And um, at the end of the day, for an athlete to have a great starting line experience, I have to make a lot of the decisions. But as a coach, I'm just as excited about watching the game play out as I am getting the result. And so I also your co- think this is the, the, the point to my to all athletes is to also consider yourself as an equal in the process. Um, the coach will need you will want the coach to make final decisions about key things because you want that starting line experience. Because if I guarantee you any athlete that's coached themselves knows that the, the, the moment that they know that coaching yourself is the worst moment is when they're standing on a starting line, which is why I come up with that starting line experience because I've done it myself. Um, I just wanted to lean on somebody that I knew had an equal measure of commitment and skin in the game on the thing that I did. I didn't like my coaches who were top-down, forced me into a role, and that's why I've coached all my career as, you tell me what you think, you tell me where you sit. Sometimes people get grumpy with me about that, but I really want them to know that it's a that it's a relationship, as you stated, and that the coach isn't equal to the athlete. They're just the one that has to make some crucial key decisions at key moments so you don't have to make them yourself. That's the benefit of the coach-athlete relationship. And those athletes who are doing it on their, on their own, I don't have any easy answers for you <laughs> on how you create that. Um, it didn't work for me, um, but I've watched other athletes. Uh, Carmen Troncoso and Ricardo Troncoso, are, they're, they're a married couple who... Carmen primarily coached herself throughout that in, throughout her her amazing career uh, as a as a collegi- as a post collegiate athlete made many many Olympic trials. She was also one of the greatest 
in my opinion, one of the best masters runners ever. She lives in our community. She was a coach of mine and her husband was a coach of mine. That was one of the rare athletes that I saw who was able to self coach. Now she had a trusting sounding board that she could bounce ideas off of that worked really well. If you don't have all those things, read your books and follow the book to the letter, to the letter of the law of the T. Otherwise find a coach. We're not here to bilk you of money. We're here to walk on a journey with you. We're here to share our lives and our experiences and our knowledge with you through your individual journey. And we take as much pleasure in that process as you do, no matter what gruff or rough exterior we put out there, no matter how much we hug you or don't hug you, we're all walking, your coaches are walking that journey with you. Finding an af- coach-athlete relationship that makes a lot of sense that you have trust and strength with and you follow those three things that you just talked about, you're going to end up in a great position. So um, I'm, an, I'm an apologist for coaches, not just because I am one, but because um, as a great person said one time, all teachers are teaching what they want to learn <laughs> and all coaches are coaching what they want to be coached. And I'm learning from my athletes consistently more about myself and these command performances, these win losses help me find out how I'm doing. And um, I'm blessed to have the greatest job in the world and people pay me to help them walk down this journey. I wish everybody had that opportunity, but it's, it's optimal for me and it's great for me, but I want all my athletes to know that we're in a dance together and a good dance is me isn't me freaking on them right <laughs> or them freaking on me it's us working it together so absolutely <laughs> working it together so work it together with your coaches out there and if you don't have a coach and you live in austin come talk to us we'd be happy to at least talk about it and if coach being coached here is right for you then we'd love to have you in the road community and we have over 40 coaches that coach so there's if you don't like our styles then there's one out there for you in our community so there you go that's the coach athlete relationship episode 23 maybe episode 24 as well (laughs) and we're gonna wrap it there thanks as always for listening you can check us out at our website roguerunning.com follow us on twitter instagram facebook at roguerunning and come see us we'll talk to you soon